0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. A billionaire gives up his Wall Street job to focus on the environment, spending big to stop the approval of the Keystone XL pipeline and move business investment and national dialogue away from fossil fuels.
1: In my opinion, I don't think there's any question. Either the scientists don't know what they're talking about, or as a society, we have to start to make different decisions about how to generate and use energy.
0: A conversation with green champion Tom Steyer. Also, chemical safety, probing exactly what's lurking in the lipstick that fashion-conscious women are painting on their mouths each day.
2: We were looking at eight metals, and what we have particularly found were that cadmium, chromium, manganese, and aluminum. We're present at levels that could actually rise to the level of some concern.
0: We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
3: Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt,
0: smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Tom Steyer isn't your typical environmental activist nor is he your typical Wall Street billionaire. The founder of Farallon Capital has mostly dropped out of the investment game to become a warrior in the fight against climate change. His weapons are dogged determination, an enormous checkbook, and access to some of the most powerful people on the planet. Tom Steyer recently joined with former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg and ex-Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson to found Risky Business, an organization that quantifies the economic risks of climate change. We sent an audio engineer to Tom Steyer's office in San Francisco to record this interview, but sadly before she could send the recording to us, her gear was stolen from her car, leaving us with just the phone connection. But you should be able to hear him just fine. Tom Steyer, welcome to Living on Earth.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Steve. So
0: tell me, why did the three of you come together to start Risky Business?
1: Well, I think that all three of us were concerned that we frame the energy and climate issue in the United States in a thoughtful and responsible way. And we thought that together we were stronger than apart because we had um, different political affiliations and different backgrounds and we lived in different parts of the country. So we felt as if we're going to try and address a national issue with people who are geographically uh, and politically dispersed.
0: Now, how does climate change alter the investment and business landscape in this country, do
1: you think? I think that when people are making investment decisions, what they're trying to do to a very large extent is to anticipate and foresee all the possibilities in the future. So when you talk about a dramatic change to the natural environment, you're talking about something that is going to change in some ways that we can predict and in many ways that we can't predict outcomes of how people are going to live and how economies are going to work. I think businesses are already taking into account the changes that may occur and will occur in the natural world and also trying to anticipate governmental responses to those changes. So, In thinking about what we're doing in risky business, we're trying to set a framework where we agree on kind of what's likely to happen so that then subsequently we can talk about what we should do about it.
0: So fossil fuels have long been considered, sure, bet stocks. But at this point, in your view, how prudent is it to be investing in fossil fuel stocks from an economic perspective?
1: (laughs) Well, I think that the question for fossil fuel companies that have decades of reserves to produce is whether the way that we generate and use energy is going to change over those decades. And to the extent that there's a lot of value put on the out years, then the question is, is the world going to have changed enough that for some reason the way that we're used to generating and using energy will have to change? And if that's the case, then you've got to include that in your investment thinking and your projections of the future.
0: And what do you think is the answer to that question?
1: I think there are only two possible outcomes. Either all the scientists are wrong, or we're going to have to generate and use energy differently. The reason we're doing risky business is to try and show the different scenarios that can happen so that people can start to think about how they should anticipate the future differently. So in in my opinion, I don't think there's any question. Either the scientists don't know what they're talking about, or as a society, we have to start to make different decisions about how to generate and use energy.
0: Now, rather than an investment response, we've seen a social response on this investment question, if I could put it that way. With the fossil fuel divestment movement picking up steam around the country, Um, what role do you think divestment can play in the climate change fight?
1: Well, I view divestment as primarily a political statement and an ethical statement and a moral statement. And let me just define that for you for a second, which is this. If a college endowment divests $3 million worth of Exxon stock in the real world, does that change the cost of capital for Exxon? I would argue no. That is you know, a de minimis change in a huge capital market. I think something else is going on, which is without trying to demonize fossil fuel companies, because I do believe that the actual answer to the way we will generate and use energy in new ways will be created and promulgated by business, The point of a university divesting is to make the statement that we have to make a change. That's the point of divestment is for institutions which have high ideals to gird their loins and say it is no longer okay for us to continue as business as usual as a society. We need to confront this and do what we do best, which is rise to the challenge and come up with innovative solutions that will actually make us better off in the long run.
0: By the way, I think you're on the board of uh, one of your alma maters, uh, the Stanford uh, B-School. Have you offered any advice about uh, divestment there?
1: We have talked about it, and Stanford has been studying it. I have actually um, funded two centers at Stanford to study and work on uh, new energy solutions and climate change. So the university is definitely engaged in that fight, and they are trying to find the best ways to try and lead in it. They have not divested, and it is something which is under discussion and evaluation.
0: What about your own personal holdings? Uh, What do you have in terms of fossil fuels these days?
1: I have done that. I mean, we had invested for 30 years across the spectrum of investments, and I have been working since I left Farallon to try and make sure that I don't have fossil fuel investments because I actually feel that it's important to be consistent in what you do. And I feel that for me to be sitting here advocating the change for everybody else, I have to already have made the change myself.
0: So, one of the largest fossil fuel investments that's on the boards right now, of course, is the Keystone XL pipeline. And uh, you put a lot of money into opposing Keystone. Uh, why is this such a big issue for you?
1: Uh, if you examine what's really going on with that pipeline, It is enabling a remote and gigantic fossil fuel reserve that is very dirty to come to the world market. It is decades of production, and it's the kind of thing which is going to be very, very difficult or impossible to turn off. So it's a perfect example of where business as usual will lead us to a place that could well, you know, will be extremely difficult and painful. And therefore, to allow it in the first place is a big mistake.
0: So, uh, Tom Steyer, you've made a lot of money on Wall Street. But I wonder how many billionaires have gone to the mall in Washington to speak out at a protest march, the way you did on the Keystone uh, uh, demonstration last year.
4: We can't afford 40 more years of dirty energy. Ah! the droughts, the storms, the disasters. And most of all, we can't afford not to build a cleaner, cheaper, more secure energy system.
0: Well, you got a lot of applause there, Tom Steyer. Um, How did it feel to give a speech like that? (laughs)
1: Well, the funny thing, I'll say two points about speaking on the mall. It was a really, really cold day, and I tried to keep my remarks as short as possible because people were freezing. And second of all, my then 21-year-old daughter had come down from college to listen to the speeches, and I was extremely intent on trying to say something that I thought was both true and positive and forward-thinking, thinking Thinking of her and the people of her age and trying to represent our generation in speaking about what is good and how American democracy really works, which is when people confront hard problems, they come up with new ideas and positive ideas. I want to make sure she knew that I and the rest of our generation was going to do that.
0: Tom, why have you made this issue the primary focus of this phase of your life?
1: Well, I think that It's funny, Keystone has a huge, and we discussed it, impact from a substance level, and it also has a huge symbolic impact. You know, the United States of America is arguably the leading country in the world from a political standpoint and an economic standpoint. And when we make decisions, people watch very closely and they take cues from it. In addition, this is very specifically a global pollution problem. We can't solve this by ourselves. So, if you're going to lead a coalition or participate in the leadership of a coalition, it's really important that you have some credibility to do the right thing. There's going to be a big international climate conference in Paris in December of 2015. It's very important that good things come out of that. And for us, To lead, we have to basically say we're willing to make the hard decisions, we recognize the situation, and we're doing the right things, and that's why we have a right to encourage you to do the right things as well so we can get on a path to sustainability as soon as possible. So, therefore, when you think about Keystone and say, oh, we can just do the wrong thing, and then we can go to everybody else in the world and say, but you must do the right thing, I don't think that will wash for one second.
0: You know, historically, policy hasn't really solved things. We knew slavery was wrong, but there was a social movement. Um, The rights of women, again, there was a social movement. Civil rights, a social movement. What role, if any, do you feel you need to play in the social movement to change the perspective on, on the urgency of the climate
1: question? Let me say this. We have been involved in a number of campaigns inside California and outside California. And it is absolutely clear to us that for this to get political momentum, the understanding and concern and urgency must be shared across a very broad part of society. And in fact, what we've seen surprises most people because they have, in my mind, cliched images of who cares about energy, climate, and the environment. The truth is that across the United States and very definitely in California, the ethnic group that cares the most about the environment is Latinos. Number two is Asian Americans. Number three is African Americans. The fact is we need a broad-based group, not limited to the people who necessarily label themselves as environmentalists or are labeled as environmentalists, but that definitely is bipartisan and includes both organized labor and business groups. Until that happens, we won't have enough political oomph so that elected officials feel like the time has come when we absolutely need to act.
0: And by the way, you didn't mention faith-based groups in those movements. Any role here for them, do you think?
1: Absolutely. I speak at churches and places of worship fairly regularly, and I love to do it because my feeling is that People of faith see this in two very powerful ways. One is that it's incredibly important that we protect what God has given us. And second of all, I think people feel very strongly that we must protect the poorest among us. And and they are under the, in my mind, correct impression that the people who will bear the the cost of this the most will be the poorest people. And so I think faith-based groups are people who respond, in my experience, very emotionally and powerfully
0: to them. Tom Steyer is the co-founder of Next Generation and one of the co-chairs of Risky Business. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today, Tom. Steve,
1: it's a pleasure. Nice to meet you.
0: Coming up... By regulators really don't know if it's safe to drink the water in Charleston, West Virginia. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The January 9th leak of the toxic chemical MCHM near the intake of the water supply for the Charleston area of West Virginia forced hundreds of thousands of people to rely on bottled water to drink, cook, and wash, But even after the authorities declared that where there was less than one part per million of MCHM in the water, it was safe to drink and shower again, folks showed up in emergency rooms, complaining of itching, eye irritation, stomach pain, vomiting, and diarrhea. It turns out that there is no federal standard of safety for exposure to MCHM, and public health officials in West Virginia made their decision largely on the basis of guesswork. Richard Dennison, senior scientist at the Environmental Defense Fund, joins us now. Welcome back to Living on Earth. Thank you, Steve. Great to be back. So how safe is it to drink this water with with this one part per million of
5: MCHM in it? Well, the answer is we really don't know. Um, And the reason is that that one part per million level was set using apparently the only available study, which has still not been publicly released, but was a study that only examined how much of this chemical was necessary to kill a rat outright. And we're not talking here about people drinking this water and dropping dead. We're talking about likely much more subtle kinds of effects.
0: So how exactly did they use the results of that test for lethality to set uh, what they say is a safe level for drinking water?
5: Well, we don't know all of the details because the officials in the state and at the federal level that did those calculations have been unwilling to make them public. What we surmise from the various press reports that cite those officials is that they took that acute lethality study and they applied a series of uncertainty factors to account for the fact that it was a study done in rats and people might be more sensitive The most sensitive individual, like a child, might be much more sensitive than a healthy adult. And then they attempted to apply an extrapolation factor to account for this use of a lethality study to predict other kinds of effects, although apparently only a small adjustment was made there. The problem with all of that is that the starting point for the calculation is wrong in two ways. One It's a lethality study when we're really talking about other kinds of effects. And two, they didn't use a study that identified the lowest dose at which an effect was seen and then adjust accordingly from there. They used a study and picked the median value. In other words, the dose of this chemical that would kill 50% of animals exposed to it in a very short period of time. And those are departures from standard practice in risk assessment, and it means that I have no confidence that that one part per million level um, is safe. I want to emphasize I'm not saying this chemical is unsafe. I'm saying we don't have enough data to know whether it's safe or not.
0: Now, as I understand it, people who are in the areas that have been given the okay to use the water say they nonetheless can smell the characteristic licorice odor when they turn on their showers. That indicates, obviously, some presence of the chemical, I would say.
5: Yes, it does. Now, one thing that's true, certainly with some chemicals, is that the amount of the chemical necessary to allow you to smell it is often quite a bit lower than the amount that would cause a toxic effect. I don't know that that is the case, one way or the other, with this chemical, because that information has not been provided.
0: So... What risks does this chemical pose in tiny doses, say down to parts per billion?
5: No idea. Um, No idea because the data simply do not exist. And that is a data gap that can be traced to the fact that the law that is supposed to regulate these kinds of chemicals does not require them to be shown to be safe to be on the market. That law is the Toxic Substances Control Act. It dates all the way back to 1976. And this chemical, MCHM, is one of the chemicals that was grandfathered in when that law was passed. It was simply assumed to be safe. I do think that this kind of an incident may help to spur forward the legislation that's being considered in Congress to reform this Toxic Substances Control Act. I'm hopeful that it will provide greater impetus to getting the debate moving and getting this legislation moving through Congress.
0: In view of what some call the precautionary principle, what's your opinion of the decision by the public health officials in West Virginia to allow people to start using this water again at one part per million?
5: Well, on one level, I have some sympathy for them, They're flying blind here, and clearly the uh, major disruption of losing residential water for 300,000 people is not to be taken lightly. So I understand the pressure they're under. I don't know what I would do in their shoes, but I think what we need to be looking at is how did we get into this mess, recognize the fact that any of tens of thousands of other chemicals might also have been in that tank. And had they leaked, we might have been very much in the exact same boat because we have an overall uh, system of regulation here that has allowed these chemicals simply to be presumed safe. And the only time anybody ever looks at them is in a situation like this, and suddenly everyone's scrambling and trying to cover the decisions they've made. This was a uh, disaster waiting to happen. Tanks do leak, even when there's good monitoring and containment accidents happen. And we need to have the information at hand to be able to deal with them in a responsible way. And this example tells us we were far from that situation.
0: Richard Dennison is a senior scientist at the Environmental Defense Fund. Thank you so much, Richard.
5: Thank you very much.
0: Well, given that so many chemicals were grandfathered into use and not tested for safety at a federal level, some states are taking on the job of protecting consumers themselves. One of the leaders is California, which has just set up the Safe Cosmetics Program product database, allowing the public to go online and check if such products as makeup contain potentially dangerous ingredients. This website arrives at a timely moment for Youth Radio's Joy Morgan. Like many women, buying and wearing the latest cosmetics is almost a ritual for her. But she has started to wonder exactly what is in those colorful glosses and bright pink lipsticks she paints on her mouth. Here's Joy.
6: One thing I know for sure, my friends and I count on the perfect lip gloss to set off our looks. Whether we're heading to class or a night out, right now I'm totally into bubblegum pink. But I was surprised to learn what's in these tubes. Polybutin titanium dioxide? I've never read the labels, the five print. Dural, oh, I don't know how to say that. I didn't know there was instructions on that. Nica retinus communis? Oh, oh, I know that one. That's castor oil.
7: Yeah, it definitely matters. I mean, it's on your mouth, so you're automatically going to be putting that in your mouth, and ultimately it's going to affect you.
6: Teenage girls spend nearly $14 a month on cosmetics, more than even their 18- to 24-year-old peers, according to a recent Youth Beauty Market report. That's one reason why researchers at the University of California, Berkeley, collected popular lip products from a youth group in Oakland. Dr. Katherine Hammond, an environmental health scientist, tested the lipsticks and glosses.
2: We were looking at eight metals, and what we particularly found were that cadmium, chromium, manganese, and aluminum were present at levels that could actually rise to the level of some concern.
6: Consumer advocacy groups and the Food and Drug Administration, the agency that regulates makeup, have both found lead in cosmetics but disagree about whether the concentrations are harmful or not.
2: So the fact that these metals were there doesn't surprise me. I had some suspicion that they might be. On the other hand, uh, that they actually reach the levels where we might be concerned, that did somewhat surprise me.
6: The Personal Care Products Council stands by the safety of their products. But as a teenager who wears a lot of makeup, how much metal am I actually exposing myself to?
2: On average, maybe a person uses it two to three times a day. Mm -hmm. You know, average is just an average of many numbers, but nobody's average, right? Mm -hmm. right? Right. It's just, I have a feeling I'm
6: way beyond average. When it comes to maintaining my look, it takes more than two to three touch-ups. I wanted to be sure, so I walked around with a bulky recorder and mic around my neck, looking like a dork for a couple of days, capturing every time I put on my lip gloss. testing, 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 testing.
5: testing.
6: I was sitting on the couch in my living room, getting ready to walk out the door in the morning, when I applied a pretty pink punch shade what for you the know first me? time. What you know? About me, what you, what you know? My lip gloss is popping, my lip gloss is too. Let's keep they chase me at the school. Okay, so I'm on right now, and I just got some cookies, so that caused me to reapply my lip gloss. Um, this is reapply number three, um, but it's 11 45 It's before noon, and I've already hit the average. Okay, it is 14 Um I just had some ice cream from Rite Aid, so I have to reapply again. I reached 11 lipstick touch-ups by the end of that Friday night, and on Saturday when I kept track again, I reapplied 20 times which is the norm for a night out with my girls. But these two ladies at the hair shop across the street from my office, Rashida and Gracie, stomped my average. How often would you say you apply your lip gloss? On a good day where I think I'm looking real good, I'll say maybe every hour. Because my profession calls me to talk so much. I'm a mother and I talk so much and I eat so I probably apply my lip gloss every 30 minutes in life. I guess kids aren't the only heavy users. How much is too much? I asked the Food and Drug Administration spokesperson on cosmetics, Tamara Ward. One of the things that we like to make sure consumers know is unlike drugs, cosmetic products do not receive pre-market approval. The manufacturer is responsible for making sure that their product is safe. And we will step in when we know that there is an issue with a cosmetic product. Seems like the only directions on the side of my lip gloss are apply as needed. Well, the label is saying as needed. Mm -hmm. So as needed is vague, but it is the choice of the consumer. I get that is my choice. Well, at least now in California, the Department of Public Health has set up a website to actually tell us what's in our lipstick and shampoo. So maybe I'll take that information to the cosmetic aisle the next time I'm looking for a new shade of baby doll pink lip gloss to match the bronzy gold around my eyes. Show me your lip gloss. For living on Earth, I'm Joy Morgan in Oakland.
5: You're the boss, Christian them two clocks.
0: Joy Report for Youth two Radio. Ixris Kandaraja produced our story. Time now to peer behind the headlines with Peter Dykstra, who publishes the dailyclimate.org and environmental health news. He joins us now from Conyers,
4: Georgia. Hi there, Peter. Hi, Steve. So, what you got for us this week? Well, how about we start off with a little good news. Uh, Wind power. Wind power reigns in Spain. There's a government report, a Spanish government report out, that says that Spain got 21.1% of all its electricity last year from wind power. That edges out the number two source, nuclear. There's also been an increase in hydropower in Spain The hydropower is because they had a wet year. And, of course, if you're in Spain and you have hydropower, the source of hydropower is, of course, the uh, precipitation in Spain.
0: Yes. Um, How precipitate was Spain about this? I mean, is this conscious or is this just a result of, of Spain's bad economy and the fact that factories aren't using as much conventional power these days?
4: Well, it's a little bit of both. The coal and nuclear for electric generation declined in Spain last year. That's certainly partly due to the fact that the slower economy needs less electricity. But Spain has also built wind power in as part of its path out of a bad economy. It's a booming business in Spain, just like it is in other European countries like Denmark and Portugal.
0: So that's our dose of good news for the week that Spain's top source of energy is wind. But Peter, I suspect you have some of that other kind of news, huh?
4: I'm afraid so. As we aggregate the news each week at ehn.org, we picked up a story from a mid-sized newspaper, one that deserves a lot of credit for doing a great job consistently in covering the environment. That's the Wilmington News Journal, the biggest paper in the tiny, low-lying state of Delaware. And a reporter there named Molly Murray filed a piece on Our Noisy Oceans. That's not a, a totally new topic, but uh, with marine mammals and fish species so dependent on sound, uh, they use it for communication, they use it for navigation. The increase in ship noise and other human activity is a big deal and a potentially big change in the marine environment.
0: So the natural ocean is more like being in a library, and, uh, and now the ocean is becoming like more like being in a factory?
4: That's right. Molly Murray, the reporter, called it the urbanization of the ocean. I think that's a pretty apt phrase. Because we're not just dealing with ship noise, there's military activity, uh, including weapons testing. And on the east coast, off the coast of Delaware, there's the possibility of oil exploration using seismic testing. Seismic testing is uh, the use of these uh, uh, immense, noisy cannons that shoot air bursts at the the seafloor. And they read the signals they get back from the seafloor and figure out whether or not there's oil beneath that part of the ocean. Uh, The scientists don't know how much all this noise is ultimately going to impact whales and dolphins and and some fish species and all the marine life, but they know it's going to have some kind of impact. So we'll just have to wait and see.
0: It doesn't sound good to me, Peter, I have to say. And, uh, well, finally, bring us something from the environmental calendar, would you please?
4: You know, one of my favorite environmental things ever said by an American president, 1970, State of the Union speech, 44 years ago this week, and I quote, Restoring nature to its natural state is a cause beyond party and beyond factions. It has become a common cause of all of the people of this country, those words spoken by President Richard Milhouse Nixon.
0: Richard Nixon. And before he was forced out of office, he, what, had signed the Clean Air Act, the Endangered Species Act, and he founded the EPA. But tell me, Peter, was Richard Nixon really a tree hugger?
4: No, Richard Nixon wasn't a tree hugger. Uh, you got to remember he also vetoed the Clean Water Act. He said it was too costly. Congress overrode his veto and made the Clean Water Act law. Nixon was a shrewd politician. He needed an issue to blunt the unpopularity of the Vietnam War, which he inherited. He needed to get a little cozier with a very environmentally minded Congress But when the cameras were off in the privacy of the Oval Office, and we know this thanks to that Oval Office tape recorder that later got him in a whole lot of trouble, he gave a very different view of environmentalists. He met with auto executives, and he said environmentalists wanted to make Americans live like a bunch of damned animals. But when the TV cameras were on, he told us to play nicely with each other and play nicely with the planet.
0: And thank you, Peter, for playing nicely today. Peter Dykstra is publisher of Environmental Health News and the dailyclimate.org. Till next time, Peter. My pleasure, Steve. Thanks. You can find links to all these stories on our webpage at LOE.org. Coming up, revisiting Fukushima and Chernobyl to find out who stayed behind and why. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned.
3: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. And Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In March 2011, a strong earthquake off Japan launched an immense tsunami that set off catastrophic meltdowns at the Fukushima nuclear power complex. Among the first responders on the scene was the aircraft carrier USS Ronald Reagan. It was one of 25 U.S. naval vessels that arrived bringing clean water and other humanitarian aid. But now at least 71 of the Reagan sailors and Marines are suffering with what they are sure are the effects of radiation poisoning. And they're suing TEPCO, the Tokyo Electric Power Company, that they say hid the truth about just how deadly the radioactive plumes were in the air and water. One of those sailors is Lieutenant Steve Simmons, who told us he learned of the danger too late.
8: At one point, we'd actually brought up into the water filtration system. They'd actually come across the intercom system of the ship letting everybody know that we had a little problem that we had actually sucked up contaminants into the water system. I had already been up. I had already been showered. I had already been to the wardroom and had a couple glasses of water. I'd already filled up my water bottle a couple of times. And that water goes everywhere throughout that ship. It's what they use for cooking. It's what they have at every water fountain throughout the ship. And, you know, Honestly, at the time that it happened... I didn't want to create any panic or hysteria or anything like that, so I just kind of sh- joked about it, shrugged it off, and you know made some wise crack about, well, if I ingested any nuclear contamination, it's too late now. You know, what's done is done. You know, what can I do about it at this point?
0: So here we are, three years later, and as I understand it, you're experiencing some rather serious health problems. What's going on?
8: I am. Um, we returned from that deployment in September. And by November, my health started to decline. The first thing I noticed, I was actually driving to work, and I blacked out, and I drove my truck up on a curb. Uh, I had gone to see the doctor to see what was going on. They ran labs, couldn't figure anything out. And from there, they sent me up to Walter Reed to the infectious disease clinic. And same thing, ran labs, couldn't figure it out. So by this time, it was, you know, January time frame of 12, and I was admitted into the hospital for workup, and I told the intern about the radiation exposure, because honestly, up until that point, I'd been healthy. Intern just blew me off.
0: What were the symptoms you were experiencing at this point? You had a blackout. What else?
8: Um, By this point, I had unexpectedly dropped between 20 to 25 pounds, and my lymph nodes started swelling. From January to March, I was running a pretty solid fever as high as 102.9. You know, I was discharged from the hospital the first time for a so-called sinus infection. And three days later, I was actually readmitted because that's when my lymph nodes started swelling. During that second hospitalization, I was just coming out of the restroom and I stopped and my legs just buckled. And that was when the weakness started. So then I started experiencing uh, weakness in the legs and it just started progressing further and further. And then shortly after that, it got to the point where summer was actually carrying me up and down the stairs.
0: These days, you're in a wheelchair, I gather.
8: Yep. I spend all my days in a wheelchair now. Um, The muscle weakness just continued to progress up the legs, into my arms, my hands. And now the latest issue that I deal with is uh, neurogenic bladder. Now the signals aren't getting from the brain to the bladder. So now I have to actually catheterize every four hours.
0: Navy Lieutenant Steve Simmons, and he's not the only one of the Reagan's former crew with medical problems.
9: Many leukemias, other forms of cancer, unremitting a bleeding uh, both anally and vaginally, uh, migraine headaches, hair loss. These are all young people, by the way, in their 20s, and they were all basically in the same place at the same time.
0: That's attorney Paul Garner, one of the lawyers arguing this case in federal court in San Diego. The lawsuit faces twin hurdles. Not only is it extremely hard to prove environmental causality for illnesses, but there's also a web of jurisdictional complexity that involves the U.S. military and the Japanese authorities. The court initially dismissed the case on what it termed political grounds, though it has allowed an amended complaint due to be filed next month. TEPCO's lawyers argue U.S. courts have no jurisdiction in this matter and also cite U.S. Navy estimates that the crew of the Reagan was not exposed to dangerous levels of radiation. Meanwhile, attorney Paul Garner has no doubt who's to blame for his client's medical problems.
9: The people who were operating the boiling mechanism, uh, Tokyo Electric Power Company, they were operating a nuclear power plant which they knew was an accident waiting to happen. So uh, who's responsible? The people who are operating the instrumentality are responsible. It's a product liability situation. Here's the nub of it, okay? This is a man-made disaster. They knew on day one that they were in the process of a LOCA, loss of coolant accident in the industry. They knew that they couldn't cool down the core of reactor number one, We know from former Prime Minister Naito Kan's discussion at the Japanese foreign press recently that the core meltdown occurred within five hours of the earthquake on March 11th. The Reagan and the other vessels didn't arrive till the next afternoon. They should have been warned, just like the rest of the world should have been warned, but the people there kept it quiet. It's a cover-up, and... It's unfortunate that so many people are cooperating with this, and that mainstream media just hasn't really paid attention to this for almost three years.
0: That's Carlsbad, California lawyer, Paul Garner. There's more about this lawsuit at our website, LOE.org, where you can always listen to our show. When any disaster forces people from their homes, those who survive face the choice of eventually returning or starting anew someplace else. But when the disaster isn't over in a couple of days but lingers for generations, and when your home may not be safe, it's a tough choice. People who live near nuclear power meltdowns in Chernobyl, Ukraine, and Fukushima, Japan, have considered those alternatives. And it's the central question of photojournalist Michael Forster Rothbart's recent book, Would You Stay?, Michael, welcome to Living on Earth.
10: Thanks, Steve. It's good to be here.
0: So you spent two years living near Chernobyl, and you've also spent a lot of time near Fukushima, Japan. Uh, Describe those two regions for us.
10: It's interesting. If you go into the exclusion zone in Chernobyl or in Fukushima, they actually feel quite similar. There's just a feeling of small farming towns that have been forgotten and then abandoned. But People have this vision of the Chernobyl Exclusion Zone being a a dead zone, and really nothing could be further from the truth. There's a lot of plant life, there's a lot of animal life, and there's actually a lot of people still living and working in the Chernobyl Exclusion Zone.
0: Of course, they're not really allowed back in the Fukushima Zone yet.
10: The the Japanese government is very eager to try to get people back into the Fukushima Zone, and so they've actually designated three different sections of the zone. One section, they're hoping to get people back in as soon as possible. And obviously, the more contaminated zones, it could be decades or centuries before people are let back in.
0: When you look in these areas very close to Chernobyl, it doesn't look like a disaster zone, you say?
10: If you know what to look for, you can definitely see the signs of radiation. But if I'm just walking through the woods, it looks like a, a quiet forest anywhere. I spent a lot of time with these uh, biologists who taught me how to see the signs of radiation. For example... Pine trees typically have something called apical dominance, which means that the branch that grows the most is the, the topmost branch and just continues to grow up and up and up. And that's why you get pine trees with a narrow, you know, triangular shape. But because of the radiation, that has stopped. And instead, you get these distorted trees with branches going out in every direction. And they look, you know, they're more like shrubs than trees. So that's just one simple example. Also, I saw with these biologists, I saw a lot of birds that had minor deformities and so there, there's actually an interesting scientific debate that's been going on for years in Chernobyl because one school of thought says that actually humans are the biggest disruptor to natural life and natural habitat so if you take the humans out of the equation by creating this exclusion zone actually the animals do very well and people in that camp cite there are wolves that have returned to the Chernobyl exclusion zone they're actually wild horses that were reintroduced there they're doing reasonably well But the other school of uh, biologists have been doing some very careful studies, bird counts and things like that, and discovered that there are insects and birds and other animals that you'd expect to find there that are not there, and that there's some direct correlation between the level of radiation in a particular spot and what is living there.
0: Of course, Fukushima's disaster is a lot younger. What were you able to see in the exclusion zones
10: that was, well, different? When I first went into the Fukushima exclusion zone, I was actually amazed how similar it looked to the Chernobyl exclusion zone. You know, the same little farming villages and a feeling of abandonment. What's different in Japan, I found, well, first of all, is the scale. Estimates are that Fukushima released between 10 and 30 percent of the amount of radiation as Chernobyl. And Chernobyl actually contaminated an area of about 56,000 square miles, which is, you know, roughly the size of New York State. Whereas, Fukushima, the area that was contaminated is more is closer to the size of Connecticut. You know, about four thousand five hundred square miles. You know, maybe ten percent of the size.
0: Let's talk about a couple of specific pictures here, Michael. Tell me about Sasha Kupny. He's a Chernobyl plant worker.
10: Sasha's an interesting character. Uh, he's an amateur photographer, and so although he's been working at the Chernobyl plant for decades, his dream really was to take pictures, and so we became friends. Sasha Kupni showed me this photograph that he had taken inside the sarcophagus, basically in the reactor hall. And what's amazing in this picture, if you zoom in on it and look closely, is you see these green, blue, and red dots on the picture. What it's showing is basically radioactive particles hitting the camera sensor during the one-second exposure. But Sasha described the experience to me. And I asked, So I said, why are you willing to go in here? And he said, he said to me, have you ever climbed a mountain? Well, you know when you get to that top and you look around and you've realized you've gone as far as a human can go? He said he had that feeling inside the reactor hall.
0: Now there's another photo. This one's from Fukushima. And uh, I think it's rather telling. There's a man who's straightening bicycles in a bike rack. Why is he doing that?
10: One day I came back from being in the Fukushima exclusion zone And I got back to Fukushima City, and right outside the train station, there's a man straightening bikes. And I, I watched him for a while, and I talked to him. I discovered that this is his job, 12 hours a day, seven days a week, is basically to take bikes that people park and line them up. You know, he measures them out with his feet. You know, so they're all about 12 inches apart, and he just goes down the line and makes them all parallel and neat. And I couldn't help thinking why, when there are so many needs, for so many people, would you be spending government money, municipal money, to pay someone to straighten bikes? And I think the answer is that people have a really strong desire for normality. So even when there's chaos around you, perhaps even more when there's chaos around you, you just want some things to be normal. You know, and in this country, you know, we wouldn't care, a chaotic bike rack, we wouldn't even notice it. But in Japan, which is a very culturally orderly society, people do notice that the bikes are in disarray, and that disturbs them. And so it's it's worth it to them to pay somebody to continue to straighten them.
0: So how does the culture of Japan uh, compare to the culture of the Ukraine in terms of how people have reacted to these uh, nuclear disasters at the time and, and following them?
10: To make some broad generalizations about culture, I'd say that Ukrainians, stereotypically, are this pessimistic culture, you know, that things are terrible and they're never going to get better, and so let's just share another bottle of vodka.
0: And complain, huh?
10: And complain all the time, of course. And if you don't have a good complaint, then you have to think one up. Whereas in Japan, uh, I learned this word called gaman, which translates sort of loosely as stoicism, but it's much deeper than that. It's sort of taking pride in being able to survive any situation and very specifically not to complain, not to show people that you're struggling, to continue living and doing the best you can and going on no matter what the circumstances are. It's interesting now, the state government, the prefecture government in Fukushima is really pushing people to downplay the consequences of radiation and to say, you know, life goes on, things are fine, let's promote our city, let's promote our prefecture and encourage tourism to come back. Because there's this social pressure not to complain and not to talk about your fears, people are, are very closed mouthed. You have to get to know people pretty well before they really start to open up and talk about what they're afraid of.
0: Now that the government is saying, well, you can't quite move back to the way that we thought you could, how are people reacting? How do you think they're going to react to that news?
10: Once people lose faith in their government, it's really hard to regain it. And I heard this over and over again in Japan, that people said, we trusted the government and they let us down. They lied to us. They misinformed us. They weren't there to help us. So people have lost faith. And I think This latest news that people who they are promising would be able to return may not be able to return is just another nail in the coffin. Like 9-11 in this country, the Fukushima disaster was a, a watershed moment for Japan, where everything changes. And I think decades from now, looking back, people say nothing was ever the same after Fukushima.
0: So why do you suppose that some people stay and others go? What's the typical answer that people would give you when you ask them why they were staying in places like right near Chernobyl?
10: I really found two things. One is that people replied to me and said, well, why should we leave? It's hard for us to understand it. We live in such a transient world in this country. We're so mobile, moving every couple of years. But if you live in the same house as your ancestors, it takes a lot to uproot you. I talked to some old woman, for example, who said, okay, we've been through the Nazis. We've been through a famine. uh, We've been through changes in government. And all these terrible things that have happened to us in the past, we're not going to leave just because of some invisible radiation. And and I think the most basic reason is just because this is home, and home is such an important notion to people. You know, people suffer great difficulties in order to stay in their home.
0: Michael Forster Rothbart's book is called, Would You Stay? Thanks so much, Michael.
10: It's great talking with you, Steve. Thanks for having me.
0: Winter can be a tough time for birds, but it's also a time when tough birds are on display. Here's Mary McCann with today's Bird
7: Note. Each season ushers in its own bounty of bird life. Winter is the best season to highlight North America's feathered thunderbolts, the falcons. Northern nesting species of falcons, like this peregrine we're hearing, move southward closer to their many admiring observers. Hurtling through the air on blade-like wings, falcons rank among the fastest of all birds and the most adept at capturing prey in flight. One falcon much more prevalent across the U.S. in winter is the merlin. Ten inches tall with a two-foot wingspan, the merlin chases down small birds from sparrows to sandpipers. Small but powerful— The fearless merlin will buzz even a huge eagle that enters its airspace. The majestic jeer falcon drifts south in winter to the northern tier of states. Larger than a red-tailed hawk, in a direct sprint, the jeer falcon can overtake even the fastest duck. The mid-sized peregrine falcon nests in some locales across the country, but its numbers are greatest in winter, especially near the coasts. During its dive on a hapless pigeon or dunlin, a peregrine may reach an airspeed approaching 200 miles an hour. I'm Mary McCann.
0: And for some photos of those falcons, dive into our website, LOE.org. Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Baskin, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and Gabriela Romano all helped to make our show. This week, we're delighted to welcome two new interns, Clarissa Baker and Catalina Pierce-Schmidt. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison lierer composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org, and like us on our Facebook page, it's PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet From at Living on Earth, I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes
3: from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by a friend of Red Tomato, supplier of righteous fruits and vegetables from Northeast Family Farms. www.redtomato.org This is PRI, Public Radio International.
1: PRI, Public Radio International.